0: Hello there, this is Fiona, host and main GM for What Am I Rolling?, a twice monthly RPG one shot podcast. This is a bonus QA episode to tide us over to the next one shot, and it is indeed a very special QA, as a few weeks back I had the pleasure of interviewing Doug Lewandowski and Jack Rosetree, the game designers behind In Name Only. In Name Only is a minimalist role-playing system where your real, actual name determines all your skills, abilities and powers. When players need to make checks, they roll a d20 and add a bonus to it, usually between plus 3 and plus 5, depending on the length of their name. If the result is 10 or more, they succeed, it's as simple as that. We actually played a really great one-shot of In Name Only in episodes 28 to 31, so check that out before listening to this interview. This system is really straightforward and easy to run both as a Games Master and to play in as a player, so I can highly recommend it for not only introducing new players into the world of RPGs, but introducing new Games Masters into running a session. You can buy In Name Only on the PNP Arcade website. That's www.pnparcade.com. I'll put links to both Doug and Jack's works and their recommendations on the What Am I Rolling website and in this episode's show notes. So could you introduce yourselves? Who are you and what do you do?
1: I'm Jack Rosetree. My day job is working in retail, but in my free
2: time I play and design tabletop games. And I am Doug Lewandowski. Uh, My day job is a high school English teacher, and then once in a while I get time to work on games and RPGs.
0: How do you guys know each
2: other? So Doug and I live in roughly close
1: geographical area by comparison to other people. And there's a, there's an event three times a year in Morristown, New Jersey, part of the Double Exposure Gaming medium-sized cons. And uh-huh. Doug and I just know each other through that. He usually has a table there i sometimes have a table there but we've playtested each other's games here and there and uh, mostly complain about how bad
2: we are at uh, design yep that's <laughs> absolutely true
0: <laughs> so what made you both want to write your own rpgs
2: yeah i, I don't know uh some of the earliest stuff i designed were RPGs back when I was a lot younger uh, in middle school and high school playing uh, second edition Dungeons and & Dragons. And they weren't very good, but that has always, I think, been the space that interested me the most, even if for a while I thought it was going to be board games. Because I'm very interested in having people tell stories with what I do, whether they're mechanics or or board games or or whatever. Having the, the stories that come out of a game, I think are more interesting than that time that you rolled this number, it's about what that number means. And so I think transitioning into into RPGs was sort of a, a natural shift for me from board games. So as far as my
1: work on RPGs, I've always kind of understood the world according to systems. That's how I've processed everything around me. And RPGs are like Like exactly that. They're an outlet that is kind of at the intersection between being creative and logical at the same time. And I've always enjoyed kind of taking different types of stories or the building blocks for different types of worlds and finding ways to make them interact with each other such that somebody can step in and use those blocks on their own to create something that is theirs. And that's always just been super fascinating to me. It's like programming for the human mind.
0: So you both uh, talked about sort of storytelling being an important element in RPGs and stuff. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's become so popular in general, uh, that sort of idea of a storytelling RPG rather than, say, a mechanics-heavy of dice and miniatures and all that sort of thing, whereas storytelling is fairly straightforward? I
2: think people have less and less time to play games nowadays, and so people <laughs> want stuff where the rules are gonna get out of the way as quickly as possible and get them started as quickly as possible. You know, I think 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there weren't as many widely available rules-light kind of games. And I know for me as a player when I was younger, Like my favorite sessions of D&D were the ones where like my brother and I would be out for a hike and we would just tell a story and his actions would have consequences. And so I think I think it's a natural progression that people don't want to be consulting a Thacko table to figure out whether they've successfully done something or not. I think as games get more sophisticated, they get more simple, generally speaking, which isn't to say there aren't sophisticated, complex games, Mm -hmm. but I think the general trend that we're seeing is to lower the the barrier of entry. You don't have to read this 200-page book before you even can create a character. It's here, take the sheet and make a couple decisions, and boom, you're good to go. And I think that's just more appealing because it's faster to start for people who are busier and just a lower barrier of entry.
1: Yeah, I also think um, tactical... Level D&D and Pathfinder and that sort of thing already exists. You know, people have those books, they can play them. You know, people know exactly what they're going to get out of those for the most part when they engage with them. Lower investment games where you can kind of hand wave what's going on in combat or, you know, roll a pile of dice and they tell you how the combat resolves as opposed to the micromanaging each attack roll and that sort of thing. I think there's a lot more opportunities to get somebody to try that out you know if, if somebody only has time to meet with their friends once every three months you know playing one solitary game that has a beginning middle and end is a lot more appealing than you know dedicating that time to the same characters in D every you know for 12 years and now there's groups that will do that but yeah. Like I said, the barrier of entry is much, much lower for those low investment games.
0: We've talked about before about sort of board games and like sometimes people would prefer playing a board game or an RPG over the other. Do you think there's any elements of an RPG that has over a board game? You were saying before like the idea of having, you know, we can only play like once every three months. Why would people choose an RPG over, say, a board game if they give sort of the same sort of experience?
1: Yeah, I think some people really like continuity, you know, they also like perhaps lack of resolution. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. But basically, you know, if if I get together with my friends and we play a board game for the most part, you know, ignoring some new trends. Uh, We play that game and there is a resolution at the end. Somebody wins or the group wins or the group loses, that sort of thing. But with an RPG, you get to the end of the adventure and maybe you did save the day, maybe you didn't. But there's not a definitive you won, you lost type of resolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of with RPGs, they're almost like the platonic ideal of game systems. You have maximum number of rules for minimum number of components. RPGs can be contained in a book, you don't need miniatures, you know, you maybe use a dice, you maybe use some cards, but 99% of the game is played in your head. And I think that there's something to be said for that. We tend to interact with people that probably are very pro-RPG, but, uh, you know, I had an interesting experience recently where I ran an RPG with some friends of ours, and uh, one of them who is an avid board gamer at the end of it said, you know, I really, I just don't think this is for me. And it was simultaneously very, very surprising, but also a little bit illuminating that RPGs aren't for everybody.
2: Mm. I think I know for me, the appeal is the story. I know when I play board games, I know when a lot of people I know play board games, they build story elements into it, even if they don't necessarily exist. I think the the best games we're seeing created now for the most part, create and tell some sort of story. That's why I think we're seeing so many legacy games, why we're seeing so many campaign-style games, and why those are taking off. Okay. Because it's the investment in in what happens, and I do think the continuity and the possibility for continuity is key for a lot of people. But I think just the way that we're seeing so many games... So many tabletop board games like strive for an experience that people who grew up playing video games are used to. We know what the story, however thin it is, behind Super Mario Brothers is. And so, even if it's really just a how quickly and how accurately can you judge how quickly things are moving kind of game, it's not you know uh, Arcanoid or Centipede or anything like that, where it's sort of devoid of story mm-hmm. and. As we get into more stuff like Fallout, where your choices narratively matter more, I think people want to see that reflected in the games they play outside as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're seeing more places where you have freedom to sandbox a little bit, as opposed to, you know, most board games where it's like, okay, well, this is your objective, work towards this, Mm -hmm. rather than what narrative can you build I agree certainly with Jack about the point about the difference between winning and losing in a board game versus an RPG. You know at the end of a season of Pandemic Legacy whether you won or lost. Mm -hmm. You're still creating that narrative, but I know for me there's a much more, you know, my most satisfying D&D games have been ones where, like, my character failed horribly and it took the things in a totally different direction narratively. Like, I think it's cool that with an RPG as long as you're having fun you sort of can't lose mm-hmm. so so yeah like in the entire time i've been playing rpgs like i've lost two games that just because i didn't enjoy them and that's it
0: that's, that's interesting actually the idea of losing an rpg and and like you said like when your characters have failed at something yeah it doesn't necessarily mean you shut the book and that's it the thing for me about RPGs is obviously, as we've sort of said, of storytelling, but it's it's not just one person telling the story, it's a collaborative one. And right. that idea that a failure or something has a, a consequence, that's what you were talking about before, Doug, about you know going on hikes with your brother and telling the story, and it has a consequence. Yeah. And I think that's something... It's such a unique thing that maybe you can't get necessarily with even with like legacy board games per se. Like obviously things will happen. I think we were talking about it just before the interview, I'm talking about betrayal at the house on the hill because that's in itself got so many different endings and so many different ways a game can go. Having a legacy game on that that's quite an interesting way of sort of doing, it. and that's obviously specialised in sort of horror and having a traitor in there and something like that. So it already has a sort of collaborative elements of storytelling, but there's obviously certain templates to follow. Whereas like normal RPGs, the idea that you could do something and it affects your whole character or the rest of the way how you play for however many times is just an interesting concept, I guess. And it's something I don't think is explored or is mentioned that much, really. I think... When you introduce someone to playing an RPG, you say, oh, you'll really enjoy this, and either, either they will or they won't. Right. Usually people go for tragic backstories, don't, don't they? <laughs> right. Like, I am an only orphan, and both my parents are dead, or are they? All that sort of thing. There was actually there was something recently on Twitter. Uh, I saw that someone was like, try and do a one-shot in any... RPG setting you want, but no one is allowed to have a tragic backstory and see right. how hard it comes up. And I thought that's such an interesting idea to try, because obviously someone will always be an edge lord type thing, like oh. Yeah, right. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, for the, the game of Red Death that I'm doing a podcast for on the Role to Play Network, when we were creating the characters, I said, okay, here's the deal. You get two skills to start, and if your backstory is not tragic, you get three skills. <laughs> um... <laughs> And three of the four characters took me up on that, which I think is great because that, like, a tragic backstory, like, I'm a lone wandering orphan with no one who loves me and I love no one. It's like, okay, great, so how do I motivate you? Yeah, I'm motivated by money. Okay, fucking great. Like, that's fantastic.
0: (laughs) It's like, all right, Bruce Wayne, you get it.
2: (laughs) As opposed to, like, well, I'm incredibly happy. I live with my family. My dad is a prominent doctor. Uh, I have a bit of a sibling rivalry with my brother. And my mom is into some, like silly mystic stuff that I think is all bunk. Like, mm-hmm. okay, now I have 3 characters who I can threaten and you're like, "Oh shit, I've got to save my mom." Like, that's great. <laughs> it's not lazy storytelling if you have like to defy the tropes of these sorts of things where right, we expect our our heroes to be the <laughs> sort of like, grim, dark, suffering, like I have to do what I have to do, but I hate it. It just, yeah, it makes for such richer stories and stuff that you haven't necessarily heard before.
0: Mm.
2: One of the things I do in a lot of my
1: campaigns when I run them is I'll have, like, basically a campfire night where At some point, you know, while they're traveling or whatever, I will hand out little slips of paper that that give prompts. And some of them are tragic because, you know, that's easy to write. So so it might say, you know, uh, you lost somebody dear to you in a freak accident. It was nobody's fault. You know, nobody killed this person. It was just an unfortunate accident. You know, how did they die and how has that impacted you? And a lot of times, you know, whatever backstory they've come up with, Some players might incorporate that a little bit, but for the most part, like players will come up with something fresh. And in a lot of cases, that little tiny detail will matter more to them in the long run than you know an entire page worth of backstory that they wrote when they made their character. I love giving players a chance to kind of narrate what's going on, and uh, to go back to the success with consequences thing. A system I'm working on right now, which is probably going to be my next thing that I throw up on Kickstarter, is called Antimatter, and it's kind of a space sci-fi theme with some generic space sci-fi stuff, but. The system itself is broken into successes and anti-successes, and anti-success is kind of unlike a failure in that usually you successfully do the thing you're trying to do because you're trained at it, you're good at it, but something bad happens as a consequence. So you might be picking a lock and whereas another game might say, oh, you failed, you don't pick the lock and the door's still locked. This one says you succeeded picking the lock, but you set off an alarm and now there's a timer on how much longer you can be here. And the idea is that, you know, like matter and antimatter kind of annihilate one another. successes and anti-successes will annihilate one another throughout the game.
2: Yeah, which I think is like a perfect representation for failing forward or succeeding mm-hmm. with consequence. Like the, what is it, the seven to nine role in the Powered by the Apocalypse system, where it's like you succeed, but you have to give something up or mm-hmm. or, or something minorly bad happens.
0: Uh, yeah, at a cost or something like that. Yeah. There's uh, the Mouse
1: Guard role-playing game, which I consider probably like the most beautiful coffee table role-playing book ever has this system where your character will have flaws, but it's not up to the storyteller to use your flaws against you. It's actually up to you to say, I I don't remember exactly how the the system works because it's been years since I read it, but basically you impose a penalty on yourself. Like if you have a really long tail and you're trying to hide from a cat, you can say, oh, well, my really long tail doesn't make it all the way behind the curtain with me, Mm. so now I have a penalty. And then you can use the penalties that you incur Kind of as positive feedback karma for future actions, and that's something that I absolutely love because, again, it, it there's a lot of RPGs that do the whole you know pick a bunch of flaws, but if you never bring up that you have these flaws, mm-hmm. and the DM you know, has so much stuff that they have to pay attention to that they're not going to, like, call your flaws against you, then they're not really flaws. They're just things written on your character sheet that got you some extra points. And I love systems that kind of reward characters for that. Another one that does it is the uh, Marvel heroic role-playing system actually has, uh, and again, I don't remember exactly how it works, but you basically get, like, bonus XP for doing things or experiencing things in
2: lines with your character's drawbacks. Yeah, and the next game that John and I are working on, which is still secret until after free RPG day, every character has to have a fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. And anytime they do something in line with their fatal flaw and they fail at it, it still uses the adversity token system that we have in Kids on Bikes. But instead of getting one for that failure, they would get two unless the GM decides that they're being a jerk about it and trying to ruin everybody else's fun because like no I'm always I'm always reckless so I would just run in there so I'm just gonna run in there <laughs> if that happens you get nothing and uh, you're you're asked to leave the game but
0: uh... <laughs> so obviously we've played through in name only on the podcast I was wondering if you could both sort of give a brief overview of what it is and how it sort of came about how did this sort of development between you two? came about for this micro rpg
2: yeah so
1: in name only was a small rpg that doug and i launched on kickstarter uh i'm gonna say a few months ago but i'm really bad at time so some time ago it started as um I participated in the 200-word RPG challenge, which is it's once a year. A bunch of people write entire RPG systems within the frame of 200 words. You're supposed to write something that is actionable, that still has a system to it, that has theme, that sort of thing. I didn't even get past the first round of vetting because I think it was a little off the wall and in retrospect not as actionable as I would I would like to have believed at the time. But the core concept was you you write down a name and the letters in your name determine what skills you have and each letter related to, you know, a skill that starts with that letter. So A might be archery, B brawling and so on. Doug actually slightly misread my original version of this and thought that yeah. you know you had to use your real life name, and that I was saying, there's no way you can ever use a different name. It has to be your name, and was super, super into the idea. And so the two of us you know chatted about it, and I said, "Well, why don't we put something a little more elaborate together than two hundred words and do a Kickstarter?" And I had the stupid idea of, you know, let's do it for like a dollar. And then if people put $2 in, we will give them permission to use a name other than their own. And so uh, we ended up launching it as part of the uh, Doug the Make 100 Make 100, which is you make something, but you do a tier that has exactly 100 slots in it that offers something that the other tiers don't. And so the the $2 tier, which only had 100 slots, was you know we give you permission to play characters by other names, (laughs) and we even had something in the campaign that essentially said like, how are we going to enforce this? We certainly cannot, but Right. There. Yeah. <laughs> I think that covers the beats,
2: Doug. Was there anything else? Yeah, that's that's a, a fantastic summary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's the thing that attracted me about In Name Only. It's the same thing. Like The thing that grabbed me is, as soon as you say, oh, it's core game mechanic is that you use your name and that detects your skills, you go, ooh, what's my name going to be? Yeah. And you'll suddenly then have that hook and then you're in. And compared to other games, like uh, again going back to D and D, there's so many guides on like, well, what names you could have for your elven uh, princess <laughs> right. or your dwarf boxer or anything like that, and obviously clan names and stuff, which is really really great. But the idea that again in the starting adventure you're whisked away to the world and you could be whatever you want, but still with your name. I just thought that was just such a cool, unique concept. And you're instantly hooked by that sort of unique game mechanic. So you sort of talked very briefly about sort of putting it on Kickstarter. You gave away, I think mean, that's the other thing. You gave away sort of the core system for free and then only asking for a dollar or two. And I, it was interesting because I was like, wow, you're already giving it away. And so people could not funded they could just take right.
1: I think we were aiming for a 100 bucks which you know after fees and everything else Doug and I make make enough to buy a few drinks and that's about it right. uh, but I think we ended up close to 700 bucks which sounds about uh, right yeah yeah i mean i mean it because it was a project that we both enjoyed making and mm-hmm. we both- Probably make anyway. It's uh, something that just gravy on top. You know, we now have it up on uh, PNP Arcade. People can buy it for like two dollars. That's not the only way that you can get it if you pay attention. But you know, if people want to kick us a couple bucks for what I think you know makes up for it more than enough, that's super exciting to us. And it was also a bit of a, an experiment. I mean, it's it's a small. It's a small RPG. So I think with bigger systems, you've always got to strike that balance where when you put something like on Kickstarter, you have to say, like, well, here's what the system kind of is about. But you can't just share, you know, 200 page of system mm-hmm. with people. Right. And expect them to have any idea as to what they're looking at. But when the entire system is contained within 15 pages, people can kind of flip through it and be like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's a dollar. Yeah, sure. Why not? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, And the other thing that we held back, which I don't know if I'm going to do with future projects, is the introductory campaign or adventure, which... I think it was like another five or six pages we didn't include in the the initial release. So if people wanted to take the system and play it for free, they'd have to come up with their own system. Whether that made any kind of difference and whether or not people backed it or not, I'm inclined to think probably not. But uh, yeah, overall, I think most people, they look at the one or two dollar tiers and it's like it's like a tip jar for us. You know, we're going to put this out there. We're going to make it available to people, you know, whether they like it or not. And if they want to give us a little bit of money to cover what's going on, then fantastic. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the, the limited release, like smaller rule set kind of thing was something that we did with Kids on Bikes where you could get the rules and be able to play a game and it didn't have... Everything you need for a full campaign in it, but it you know you're able to to try it out and see what you think of the core mechanics. And so I think that's something that's important to me for the for most of the campaigns I do, that especially with the way the Kickstarter market is now, people want to see that like this is actually a finished product. Mm-hmm. And so I think having a rules light version like, hey, check this out, get it here, especially if the price is is low. Like once you look at it and play it, then I think people are, once they know what to expect, more likely to back it. <laughs> a couple nights ago, I had a conversation with Will Sobel about uh, I mentioned on Twitter that Tim Devine and I are working on the next cut rate RPG and said in the, the tweet, "My next you know one dollar game is is going to be a collaboration with Tim. And will messaged me, and we had a, a really interesting conversation about pricing. And, you know, like Jack said, my thinking with Within Name Only was like, yeah, we're going to do this anyway. We're going to put it together. We're having fun working on this. Mm -hmm. Why not? Right. He presented a really compelling why not that I think is going to prevent me from doing another $1 thing, which is that if I'm saying this amount of work is worth a dollar for someone who is a published designer, what message is that sending to other people who maybe aren't published designers? And what's that doing to the market value of creative work? And so in retrospect, I think if we were doing this over again, I would probably push for In Name Only to be like a like a $5 yeah. RPG. Not because like I desperately want to have the extra you know, for 3 or $4 per sale, but because I don't want to be sending the message to creatives out there or to, or to consumers of creative projects that, like, the expectation should be people will do things for very little, and that's what you should expect, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and that's something that did strike me as well. There's been an interesting chats I've seen again on Twitter this is such a weird phrase to say, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, it's like, oh, how many, how many cents per word? Which is such a, for me, a bizarre concept. We were just talking about before that, sort of trying to strike a balance between having a system that isn't 200 pages long that people will read, but also making sure you are being credited and paid for your time as well. I did think to myself, when I backed it, I was like, well, one dollar is, to me, is nothing. It's a throwaway thing. I feel if it was mm-hmm. for $5, I'd be equally like, yeah, it seems like a $5 RPG. That's reasonable. Yeah. $5 to $10, I think, is more than reasonable for a PDF. So it was interesting to see that, but to see it so successfully funded when sometimes RPGs aren't that's funded mm-hmm. as well. That, and yeah. People could have just taken a system and then not donated at all.
2: Right. Well, if you want to know the craziest shit, the amount of money that I personally made off of in-name only is more than I've been paid for at least one of the RPGs that I've designed and was formally published. And thinking about what that says about the value that we place on creative work really made me like, and that was part of why I was willing to charge a dollar for it because it was like, okay, shit, if I make $250 off of this, boom, I'm like way over what I made for insert name of game here. I wonder, and I think Will is right about this. That by charging a dollar for it, it's enabling publishers to say, "Oh yeah, bro, we play three cents a word. That's it." Like that's not sustainable. You can't. Yeah. You can't play test something and have it be worth three cents a word, right?
1: Yeah. No that that makes a lot of sense. And in retrospect, I already. Like really, kind of get that argument. And I think there's a certain amount of privilege that goes into being able to put as much work as Doug and I put into a name only and only listing it for a dollar. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that you know is worth being aware of. and uh, that's a you know point. yeah. and and so uh, I was probably going to be launching another Kickstarter within the next month or so, doing kind of the same format. I'm guessing it's a project that's not going to be as popular as uh, In Name Only or Pretty Fairy Princesses. It's the antimatter uh, one. And maybe I do need to. That's such a
2: good system. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Do not sell yourself short on that.
1: I feel like it's not going to be as immediately popular. So the other system that I'm talking about right now is uh, Pretty Fairy Princesses. It's a system where your three core stats are Pretty, Fairy, and Princess, and it's about the same length and size as in name only, and I did a similar It's it's so so good. good. (laughs) (laughs) There's a $1 tier. There was a $3 tier, which meant that your Pretty, Fairy, Princess name of your choice got included in a Pretty, Fairy, Princess name generator and then a $10 tier which we did with a name only as well which was a name of your choice gets included in one of the examples as a character doing something. So with antimatter I I don't see people being as immediately over the top about, you know, what they're looking at, but that being said, it doesn't mean I can't price it a little bit differently and uh and and make some changes
2: because you know, like I said, Doug raises some very good points here. All credit to Will Sobel. That's absolutely <laughs> him. I was like what do you mean? I, it was just a fun thing I wanted to do. He was like, yeah, other people. And I was like, oh, shit.
0: Oh, <laughs> we'll move away from the sort of sad <laughs> Kickstarter <laughs> stuff. Sorry, I got very deep there, but I, I find it really interesting because I obviously have no experience with Kickstarter, you know, again, what the ideas is behind it. So thank you for that. It was really interesting. So we'll go on um, maybe a more lighthearted question now, but what do you guys think is sort of the best ingredients for a good adventure, either using in-name only as an example or just in general, any RPG system?
2: For me, it's the unexpected. I think in media studies, they call it, like, the pop. And in the 2000s, like TV shows, and still to this day, TV shows are all about the, like, <gasps> moments where, like, I don't think this is a particular spoiler, but, like, the end of the first episode of Jessica Jones on Netflix. Have you two yeah, seen that?
0: I've seen that, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: The moment where that girl shoots herself is just, like, such like a like breath gets sucked in like, oh my God, I get why that happened, but oh my God, I never would have seen that coming. As a GM to craft those moments for players, the most memorable moment I've had in role-playing happened about six months ago in the, the D&D game that my friend is running for me and two others, about two and a half years. And one of the characters has this NPC who's sort of like a bumbling idiot, And in his backstory, like he saved this kid's village or saved this kid when his entire village was destroyed. And we were on this like totally benign, like, oh, we have to go like the Duke passed away. And now like the Duchess has like gone mad. She's been possessed by something. We have to go like help get the demon out of her. And we walk into the main hall and the GM says, and as you look up and you see The large portrait of the Duke of Verber, all of you immediately realize, huh, that's Willard, but 10 years older and with a mustache. (laughs) And we're all like, what? Oh, oh, of course, because he, oh, And like then looking back, like the little threads were there, like the Duke of Ferber had a reputation for being like a bit of a womanizer. And Willard didn't really know his parents and didn't remember his young life. And I think one of the things for an an adventure is just those moments where the GM makes a space where you never quite know what's going to happen, but you trust and you know that when it does, it make sense given what's happening. I think a lot of the criticism that I've seen, I've never watched a single episode of Game of Thrones, and what I've heard from a lot of people is that, yes, the things that happened this season were surprising, but they didn't feel like they were built up to, and that was a, like a natural consequence of it. Mm-hmm. Great stories surprise us in ways that, looking back, we go, yep, yeah, of course, right, yep. Just to Add a little bit onto that, for me, a really
1: good adventure is kind of all about momentum and flexibility. I like when things continue to move forward, whether the players want to or not. I like there to be a sense of time progression. One of my favorite situations, I was running a game, and it was an event I called the Waterdeep Grand Prix. And it was basically like the Fast and the Furious in Waterdeep. And a bunch of different people are competing to, basically with the Thieves Guilds, like Golden Cups that they award to their illegal street racers. And one of the... Participating, There were a bunch of different participating characters. One was like a 30-foot tall elf. One was a necromancer on a raft with just like hundreds of undead legs under the raft. <laughs> one of the racers was a succubus riding a stegosaurus. And at one point, like pretty close to the end of the race, the succubus like actually tries to like kill one of the characters. It turns into a big fight. They fight her and the Stegosaurus, and they kill her, and they subdue the Stegosaurus, wounding it, and I say to them, all right, the Stegosaurus is clearly wounded, it's dying, and I say to one of the characters, you have the medical expertise to save its life if you would like to, and the players immediately start arguing about whether they should save the Stegosaurus, which a minute ago was trying to kill them because they were trying to kill the succubus that was (laughs) in control of it, and... I secretly start, you know, timing the discussion, and after, like, two minutes of discussion, I just look at the rest of the table and say, the Stegosaurus dies in your care, and there's dead silence (laughs) at the entire table, and a couple of the players are like, well, I guess the decision's made for us. (laughs) (laughs) But stuff like that, like, I find that there are tendencies for DMs to let groups plan and argue and make decisions that take way too long and in certain circumstances a really good adventure kind of pushes things through with a bit of pace Mm -hmm. and when the world continues to act whether the players are or not it gives the players a sense that the world is a real living and breathing place um And that's something that when the players kind of internalize that and recognize that, it means that they understand that their actions do have consequences, whether it's inaction or, you know, taking an action too early or too late. But it also, it gets them jived to be in that world because that world makes sense to them.
0: It's sort of building on what you said, Doug, about that sort of sudden surprise there. And it's not necessarily, for me, it's like, yes, the GM can do that, but it's when the players do as well. A good example Mm -hmm. of that being in our version of In Name Only when one of the characters decided to name the girl they've been saving Fiona and as I was saying before it's not obvious on the podcast but I actually burst into tears of happiness (laughs) because I did not expect it at all and I had a a really hard day and suddenly they were just like but it's Fiona wake up and I was like oh my god I'm now in the game (laughs) it was just such a, a lovely gesture which yeah. didn't have to happen, but I was just like, that completely threw me. It was such a small little gesture, but mm-hmm. and to anyone else it probably wouldn't have meant to, but it, but to me, I was I was just sort of blown away how they just took that sort of story and then changed it.
1: For your listeners, In Name Only has a specific section that describes that when the DM's running the game or the storyteller's running the game, they're not really going to give names to anybody that doesn't matter. So, you know, even if the party's meeting, like, the king... The king's only ever referred to as the king. And if the players either accidentally or purposely name a character, that suddenly makes the character somebody with, you know, hopes and dreams and flaws and things about them that matter. And so, you know, naming a character and and especially, you know, naming it, after the dm suddenly makes something very real and 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 i was listening to the podcast and at that moment i think you actually say like i'm crying <laughs> uh, i don't know if you noticed but the entire room that you're playing in like erupts with just like joy and excitement and because some of the other players i don't think knew what she was planning to do mm-hmm and it just it like put like this nice little capstone on the entire adventure in a way that clearly like tied all of you together just really beautifully
0: yeah i'm glad i got to do that with your system (laughs) (laughs) do you guys have any predictions for rpgs in the future In say like 10 years time
1: i think a lot more is going to go digital than is even right now um i mean that's like the obvious easy one Speaking more specifically, and just to kind of, like, fire some shots, mm-hmm. I think Wizards of the Coast and Paizo are going to kind of get their butt kicked a little bit because they've both been doing things that make it very difficult for brick-and-mortar stores to make money off of their products. And speaking as somebody that actually worked in that environment, like, it's hard not to take it personally. For instance, uh, right now, if you're a brick-and-mortar store and you buy a DD book it's usually like 25 bucks to get a D&D book to your store and then you're expected to sell it to the customer for $50. But wizards of the coast sells directly to Amazon. Amazon sells D&D books oftentimes at like 30 bucks
0: mm-hmm.
1: which yeah, you know, makes it very hard to compete and there are times where Amazon will actually sell they'll put them on sale and a D&D book sold through Amazon goes for less money than a brick-and-mortar store can buy it through like a distributor wholesale. And again, that gets very frustrating and it's hard not to take it personal when, you know, your livelihood and the place that you, you know, game at is suffering because the company isn't adhering to certain pricing standards online. And Paizo did something a little bit similar with their uh, playtest for Pathfinder 2nd Edition where they sent out playtest books that players could buy and try out the new system over the course of, like, I think a six-month playtest or a five-month playtest. And distributors were pushing this out to brick-and-mortar stores, and then Paizo made the entire thing available as a free PDF, which, mm. I mean, it's great for players, but when a store is being encouraged to buy, you know, these books, again, at, like, 25 bucks and then sell them for $50 but the playtest is available online for completely free, it becomes very, very difficult to move that product. And I know a couple stores got stuck with dead product because the playtest is now over, but they haven't sold all of the playtest manuals that they picked up. And I think that's an area where companies are going to start kind of pushing back and we're going to see, you know, Kickstarters definitely um, making it possible for, more limited runs of more niche products Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Wizards of the Coast and Paizo are going to have actual competition over the next 10 years. Board games are the same way. You know, 10 years ago, there was a Kickstarter culture for board games, but you still didn't really see as much competition with the big companies. And I think, you know, smaller groups are starting to be able to compete with the bigger companies because of outlets like like Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. I hope that didn't go like just way off from No,
0: <laughs> 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 like I said, I really like I I've only I say recently, like in the last two or three years, you know, been playing RPGs and stuff. So I mm. I came through it or discovered it <laughs> you know, by someone playing it and one of my friends saying, let's do the starter adventure for fifth edition and then them putting me onto, you know, like critical role. So, you know, nothing exciting in terms of like, you know, when you hear people that like, I've been playing it since, you know, second edition and stuff like that, which I always think it's like, <laughs> oh, wow. You know, it's not me going, oh, before electricity is nothing like that. I just, I just never had that. It was
2: though. Yeah. Uh, right. just, yeah. <laughs> I have yeah, never I mean, had that
0: experience. Yeah. So it's, I find that it's interesting to me to come to it, later on in life, when I knew I would have absolutely loved this as a kid, and I feel like I've missed out in a way, but to see it now when you see people like running it online or a podcast form where you can hear people running through the system and you go, oh, so that's how you do it. Oh, I can do that.
1: I actually introduced my wife to uh, role-playing games and uh, I mean, she's fantastic at it, but her previous experience with role-playing games was in high school, some group of guys were playing Dungeons and Dragons and basically they said, yeah, you can sit in the room and watch from the corner while we play. (sighs) And I mean, that just brings up all kinds of issues with yeah, that culture. But when I introduced her to it, she kind of had this initial like, well, wh- I don't even know what your what this is. And, uh, you know, now it's something that she just totally enjoys. And she similarly, I think, feels like she missed out on that because people are crappy. But we have more opportunities now, you know, because of the age and the times that we're in. You know, she does a lot of like online forum role playing stuff, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, again, because of this this age of information that we're in, it's more readily accessible and also more accepted. You know, it, looking down on people and saying, oh, well, that's what you spend your time on. Like nobody can say that to anybody now because people are playing Candy Crush.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, <don't>
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the trends we're going to see in games is a lot more stuff moving towards. Simplicity of mechanics. Mm -hmm. I think even in the big ones, like from second edition to fifth edition, to circle back to your earlier comment, don't feel too bad about missing out. Uh, Second edition was a slog to get through. (laughs) I loved it because it was the only thing that I had that provided me with that experience. Mm -hmm. But I stopped playing for 20 years, 15 years at least. And then my friend said like, You really got to play it. I'm like, dude, I don't want to like, I want to tell stories. I don't want to sit around and like read tables. He was like fifth edition, try it. And I was like, fine, Ben, fine. And I was like, oh shit, this is dope. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more, both small games and sort of mass market games like D&D moving towards simplicity, easier pickup, and a lot more people... Moving towards, I think a big trend now is a lot, lot more people buying an RPG to play at one time, um, yeah. moving away from campaign and moving into like a one-shot sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and actually, I think the things that hold Fifth Edition back from being kind of the ideal version of d are mostly things that I can point to and say those are artifacts from previous editions that Wizards of the Coast is not ready to give up. Mm. Uh, hit points don't really make a lot of sense anymore and and right. ability scores like add an extra step that doesn't need to be there stuff like that and i think with each iteration wizards of the coast is getting closer and closer to that really streamlined experience that gives you everything you want in dnd without a lot of math i mean Doug complains about second edition. I complain about third edition to no end because it's mm-hmm. it's like the doing taxes version of D and D and people remember it very fondly and it's what made Pathfinder. And I guess it's like the best game ever, but <laughs> um, it is super, super complicated. And the more that we can get away from that and the more that we can, you know, stop doing math and start telling stories the better. And again, there's always going to be that, tactical minded individual that wants tactical combat but there can be a separate system for that
0: what are your sort of project plans for the future i know you've sort of briefly spoken about upcoming kickstart and stuff so if you'd like to share <laughs> what you're up to that'd be great uh doug you can go
2: first okie dokie so i am currently working on a game that still doesn't have a title with tim Devine, who is on the red death podcast with me and did some writing for the new upcoming secret project that Jesus, I wish I could talk about, but I can't until after free RPG day, damn it. (laughs) Um, And it's about agents training to be part of a secret government organization that it's up to you what you do, but probably you stop aliens from destroying the world and or universe. And it's about being wildly unprepared for the job in front of you. It's based off of a a meme that I saw a little while ago that somebody threw up on my wall and said, hey, you should design this game where your stats are chutzpah, moxie, gumption, and uh, childlike wonder, wonder and a certain je ne sais quoi. (laughs) And so the design restriction was, I've got to use those stats. Um, And so what would a game like that look like? So we're working on that. Also working on one called Home, which is a horror survival RPG where you and your friends play yourselves and find yourselves in a house that someone, one of the players is inheriting that they've never been to before. And you have to survive the night. It's a sort of RPG tableau building game where as you play, you lay the rooms out on the table using cards. There's a lot of stuff about your own childhood coming into play. Without giving too much away, that's the the basic gist. Um, working on another super secret project in the Kids on Bikes universe that I also wish I could talk about, someone else is doing the writing for, and was reading over some of that today, and it's just remarkable. It's so, so, so good, and I that's all I can say about it. But some things that I can talk more directly about, I have a game coming out in, I think, 2020 called Aunt Agatha's Attic. That's getting published by Chronicle. I was looking at some of the art today, and it's awesome. It's a real-time negotiation and trading game where you and your fellow cousins are looting your Aunt Agatha's attic. But as you're about to leave, she says, no, 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 you need to get along with each other. And in order to walk out of there with as much stuff as possible, you have to trade, and you have two minutes to do it. Is uh, one of the resources still what you had before? Yes. One of the resources that you have to trade instead of an item is you can give someone a hug. <laughs> and the person who has the most hugs at the end gets a very, very special item. You get the magic mirror, which helps out with scoring. So you have to trade, but in the end, you're trying to be better than the rest of your stupid cousins. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Oh, and Jr. Honeycutt and I are working on uh, a while ago, we published a game called Unpub which is a game about making games. And we're working on an update for that that I think we're currently calling Let's Make a Game, where you put together components, mechanics, and things like that to create something and then pitch it to publishers as a sort of creativity, storytelling kind of game.
1: And what about you, Jack? I've got my Antimatter game, which is, again, sci-fi, uh... I keep trying to make it not be Firefly, but it's basically Firefly, (laughs) where uh, you get successes and anti-successes. And for each success that you get, an anti-success gets added to a pool called the Friction Pool. And for each anti-success the players get during the mission, a success is added to that pool. And then at the end, they kind of even out and... Any surplus of successes have positive effects on the mission, and anti-successes have a negative effect on the mission. So if the mission goes super, super well, then when you get to the end, odds are something terrible is going on, like you were working for the bad guy the whole time, or one of the other players betrays you. If the mission goes absolutely terribly, and it's a fiasco the entire time, then usually something happens in the end to kind of pull it all together. That's something I'm hoping to do within the next couple months on Kickstarter. The one that I'm kind of working on in tandem with that, that's probably gonna come out a little bit after that, is something currently called Sock World, where your character is a sock puppet or paper bag puppet, and your stats are based on the accessories that you put on them. It's very kid-friendly, and it also teaches a lot of the things that you want people to learn at the role-playing table that I think some adults could use, like, you know, waiting your turn and not interrupting the DM when they're telling you stuff and that sort of thing. Other than that, I just recently put together a really simple game called Terrible Poetry Jam. Uh, it's like Vogon Poetry, the game, where the whole point is to make the worst poetry imaginable.
2: Mm-hmm. It's um, real
1: good. <laughs> So uh, you have a bunch of cards with rules on them, like you have to use a pop culture reference, you can't use the letter E, you can't use adjectives or adverbs, that sort of thing. And you get like three of those rules and a specific line length, and you're making five line poems, which is not a great number of lines for a poem it gets really weird and the uh, the poems get passed around the table so each player is adding a line to the poem oh, I see. so the old exquisite corpse yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, it even says in the rules like there are points but the points don't matter just enjoy your terrible poetry <laughs> right
0: final question where can we find your work and where can we sort of follow you you know social media links etc and obviously Oh, hopefully pay you for the great work you're putting out. <laughs> I think that's what I'm trying to get across there. So
1: In Name Only and Pretty Fairy Princesses are both on PNP Arcade. I actually had somebody reach out to me through Kickstarter asking about where they could discuss and ask about my games. And so I made a uh, Facebook page today just called Rose Tree Games, and it's probably where I'm going to start posting like play tests for stuff and whatnot. It's not going to be super active because I don't want to berate people with it. But it is a place where you can go to find things on Kickstarter that I am working on on Kickstarter You can find, I think, Doug and I both through the uh, in-name only campaign, and there is a follow option which allows
2: you to find out when either one of us posts something.
0: Doug, do you want to talk quickly about uh, the Kids on Bikes podcast?
2: So that actually sprung up totally independent of me at all. A group of folks decided to make up a a really great story about Swampscott, Massachusetts. And so if you want to hear Kids on Bikes in action, that's a great one. There's also Brits on Bikes, which is, is lovely. And the podcast that I'm on is a Red Death podcast. So second edition, Dungeons and Dragons, had uh, a module set in Victorian society. And our adventure takes place in Boston over a fixed number of arcs. We're currently almost done recording our second arc. Uh, and the first arc is out. I'm also on Facebook. Feel free to friend me as long as you don't immediately send me a request to like your page for the Kickstarter that you have going right now (laughs) without ever interacting with me. That's just tacky. At least like, you know, like pictures of my cats first. (laughs) That's the way to get to your heart. (laughs) Exactly. I'm on Twitter, uh, Levzilla. So those are probably the best ways to get me.
0: Brilliant. Um, thank you guys very much for this. It's been awesome to stay up this late. I don't think I've ever been up this late for uh, on a school night uh, since I was 18, so thanks for that.
2: <laughs> thank you for being willing to stay up so late. Oh, we appreciate
0: right. it. It's, it's been a really fascinating chat, So, and I appreciate you know just me going, hello, I played your game, can we talk about it?
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: I'm hoping to do more of these special Q&A bonus episodes in future, including Q&As on the one-shots we've run here at What Am I Rolling? If you have a question you would like to send in, or a submission for, help, my fictional RPG character is having difficulties, please send them along to our email address. That's whatamyrollingpodcast at gmail.com. And that's it. Great. See you next time.